Hi there. Welcome to the Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox. And I'm Kate Nishimura. Kate, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I've uh, We had a really, really awesome conversation with this week's yeah. guest, and I'm feeling all amped up and inspired from that. <laughs> it's like every week, I'm so amped up and inspired. <laughs> I can't handle it anymore. If you're wondering why, you know, we're always so amped up in our intros, it's because we're coming off of truly inspirational conversations. (laughs) (laughs) And you can have this too if you start your own podcast. (laughs) Well, maybe not. But uh, yeah, yeah. one thing I want to ask you about is that poster behind you. What is that? Look at that. She's got some new artwork on the I know. Well, so. (laughs) She's got some new artwork on the walls, folks. On the walls. I know. It's unfortunate that we can't just like superimpose video into people's listening so that you could just... We could do a video podcast. We could. Maybe not this one, yeah. but some sometime yeah. we could do that. Um, no, it's actually... It's a funny story. There's some holes in my wall from trying to install something and not realizing that there was like something behind the wall that you can't drill into or whatever. So in an attempt to cover the holes, I've put up this poster that I've had... <laughs> For like my whole life. I don't know when I acquired this. I think I was a kid. Um, it's a really old poster that just says Instruments of the Orchestra. And there's like a really, really cool, almost vintage looking illustration mm-hmm. of all of the orchestral instruments. And uh, I thought it would be a good backdrop for all of my music related video content. And it... Uh, yeah, it inspires me. I I used to look at it when I was a kid and like look at the different instruments and imagine what they sounded like and stuff. So it reminds and me of that. And now you know. Yeah. Now yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm a big fan, a big fan of those music posters. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, uh, well, earlier before we were recording, we were talking about those old Yamaha posters. <laughs> I think they still do them, but yeah. Um, I remember <laughs> there's a couple of funny ones. Like uh, it it'd always be like Al K playing his Yamaha trombone sitting on a Yamaha motorcycle <laughs> or and my favorite one my favorite one is Chase Sanborn playing his Yamaha trumpet on the back of a Yamaha moped <laughs> it's like oh that's cute that's cute i know they were like the posters that graced the walls of every music room that i've you know ever yeah. been in yeah as well as learning the parts of all of the instruments yeah was another famous series. i have but a couple anyway. of those that are not on my wall i have the clarinet one i have the saxophone one and speaking of saxophone. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. What a great segue. Speaking of saxophone, uh, we had a great chat with uh, Dr. I have to say that now. I know. Newly minted Woo-hoo. Dr. <laughs> Jeffrey uh, Lung, uh, who is a phenomenal saxophonist, educator, uh, and scholar. I think those are the three things. I think that's how he, he goes yeah, by. refers yeah. to himself. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to tell you about that. But, you know, Kate, one thing that I've been just so grateful for is people who go and leave reviews. I know. It's been wonderful. Please, everybody who's listening, before you listen to the episode, (laughs) please do us a massive favor and go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And please give the Band Room Podcast a rating and a review because it really helps other people find the podcast and grow our lovely Band Room Pod community. Mm-hmm. It sure does. It sure does. <laughs> and if you're wondering, we're both kind of a little bit tired and we, I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of coffee at this point. <laughs> yeah. um, but one of those, one of those people, and since it's a new month, that means it's our latest five-star rating and review Da-da-da. feature. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> 
Um, and this one comes from someone who actually gave us a question a couple episodes ago, mm-hmm. uh, Ben Fleischman. And Ben, if I totally murdered your last name, I, I, I send you my deepest apologies. <laughs> um, I appreciate you, my friend. I appreciate you, especially because of this review and rating. He gave us five stars. Woo-hoo. Thank you. Much appreciated. And and the title is Great Podcast! Exclamation mark. Uh, if you couldn't get that from how <laughs> I said it. Um, but uh, discovered this one when Kate Nishimura was interviewed for the second time and started listening to it more consistently when she became a host. As, as a nearly college student planning to study music ed, I've found it a really fun perspective from people who are active in the field. That's awesome. Thanks, Ben. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Thanks so much, Ben. And and Ben gave us Ben's the one who tried to put us on the spot with that uh what's your least favorite band piece? Oh yeah. yeah. But that led to a really cool us, conversation. Man. So Yeah, <laughs> it was that was a good conversation. Yeah. yeah. So at, at any rate, thank you so much, Ben, for sharing that that uh that review and rating. Uh, and thank you for listening. And speaking of listening, it was uh, such a treat. Oh, sorry, I was just laughing at these segues. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was such a treat to to listen to Jeffrey talk mm-hmm. about um, the saxophone uh, because th- this is the third installment of our sectionals series where we talk to high-level performers about their experience, certainly as a high-level performer, but also how that might apply to us in the band room mm-hmm. and how we might talk to our students or the musicians that we're working with. And there's certainly uh, none of that is missing from this episode. Uh, we we spanned so many topics that mm-hmm. Kate's going to tell you about. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. He talked about his experience with performance anxiety and uh, developing a more well-rounded approach to music making, including taking care of the mind and body. And that's just something that all musicians and all humans, I think, uh, can can always use a reminder about. So I was particularly moved by that. Talked about mentors and, you know, he's had the opportunity to work with some pretty influential and inspiring mm-hmm. conductors and teachers and now he is going to be one of them as well for many others yeah. through his web series, taking it from the top, instructional videos and and all of the other amazing work that he does. Well, he's he's just he's done a lot. He's and done a lot. Uh, and he, you know, and he's and he's doing so much good work in the world, not only for saxophonists, but I think for a lot of different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And if if we even just talk about that, his YouTube channel, uh, there's certainly lots of saxophone content on there. But uh, as we talked about in the episode, there's a really wonderful episode on musician wellness, as well as every month he's stretching his interviewing chops and talking to uh, really wonderful saxophonists and, and pedagogues and mm-hmm. teachers. So even if you're not a saxophonist, I encourage you to to stay and listen to uh, Dr. Lung. It's it's really it's really a treat and uh, and it was kind of a uh, I don't want to. Oh yeah, I guess kind of a homecoming because we yeah. we all are University all of Toronto paths. alumni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In very strange ways, which yeah. you'll hear about. But uh, but yeah, and we and we recorded a, a really fun uh, bonus episode talking about mentors and a little bit more about uh, performance performance anxiety, uh, as well as his relationship with Dr. Timothy McAllister, who's a saxophone legend and someone I greatly just respect as a musician. Um, so if you want to hear that bonus episode, you can by becoming a patron of 
the Bandwidth Podcast and join our Patreon community uh, where you can hear lots of extra bonus content and Zoom hangs, which will be starting the first one this month. Woo-hoo. Mark my words. We'll <laughs> have a Zoom hang because I promised someone who became a patron that we would. Um, and speaking of people who have become patrons, we're now at six patrons Yay. and we reached our first financial goal. So thank you so much uh, to all of you you who have become uh, Bandroom patrons and, and and are supporting us in that way, we can now uh, you know cover some of the costs that it, it, it takes to run this podcast. And one of those patrons is someone that we talk about nonstop on this podcast. Probably because, every episode. Yeah, probably point. every episode. <laughs> but it's part of her tier that she that she chose to pay that I thank her for uh, for her uh, support, and that is Dr. Julian McKay, who is now an official. Bandroom band nerd. Woo-hoo. I don't think there was anyone who questioned that anyway. Uh, she's been a great supporter. <laughs> now of the it's podcast. official. <laughs> yeah, now it's official. And she, uh, so yeah, so we, we get to thank her. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. McKay, for for your support, not only as a guest, but as as someone who's you know financially mm-hmm. uh, helping us as well. And she gets, you know what she gets? You know what I, I mailed her today? A Bandroom podcast coffee mug because that's one of the incentives she got. Pretty cool. Don't you all want one of those? Cool. (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, I'm happy to send some more. You could also (laughs) just order one if you want. That is an option too. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if I'm selling too much on this podcast. Sometimes, but but... it's for the greater good, folks. Yeah. It all goes back to the podcast. Join the fam. Join the fam. Well, without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Lum. Uh, here we are for another a band room podcast, and uh, this is actually our third installment of our sectional series. We've had Wesley Ferrer on the clarinet, we've had Jim Sprague on the trumpet, and now, my goodness, he has the best hair in the business. This is Doctor Jeffrey Lung. Welcome to the band room. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, so nice to be able to see some friendly faces in this time where I'm living out of a basement. Yeah. <laughs> No, this this is really great. I was, <laughs> we uh, we were thinking of uh, of having a saxophonist on for for this series, and I, both of us could not think of anyone better, uh, oh. nor who who we know. <laughs> and uh, though uh, we've only got to you know hang out once, but uh, I know that you and Kate were both students at the University of Toronto at the same time, which is yeah. very exciting. I, I still use her old reed case. I remember uh, her, <laughs> oh, her, yeah. uh, she, she, her your her old clarinet reed case. She sold to me for ten dollars i remember the exchange going down in professor crust's theory class wow it, i forgot the, about that it's my soprano soprano saxophone reed case of choice still so that's awesome i'm so glad yeah. that it's getting some use i uh, oh, yeah. i got something new my teacher actually made me a new reed case and so i was like oh i'll sell this one so glad it's still going strong it's traveled <laughs> the world and back so that's amazing <laughs> well. wow we well how about as much as I want to talk about the read case? Uh, how, how about you? Yeah, tell us about how you got started on the saxophone, and and maybe some of your early experiences in in band or or in music in general. Sure, um, I I love talking about this. Um, I started off as a late late like in terms of like what my friends were doing. I was like really late when it came to 
um, starting in band. Um, I had taken some group piano lessons um, when I was younger, but then, you know, that, that didn't pan out. Thank God. Um, <laughs> uh, but then we were supposed to start band in sixth grade, because and I was really excited about that because my father, uh, as Dylan knows, is, uh, is an, uh, we call him an, an amateur professional or professional amateur. I forget which way we, <laughs> we call him. Good. But uh, I was just really excited to be able to play an instrument like my dad. And there's this whole story of we were approaching sixth, sixth grade. And um, my, my dad was saying, well, it's time for you to pick an instrument. What are you going to do? And I thought, Dad, why don't I play trumpet? So he, he brought out his Stradivarius Bach, put it to my face. I played two notes. He ripped it off my face. No, pick something else. Uh, so uh, anyway, come sixth grade, unfortunately, we couldn't get scheduled for band that, that year. So I sang in choir for another year and started in the seventh grade, which I think compared to a lot of my American colleagues is quite late when it comes to the saxophone. And mm -hmm. thank goodness, um, I had a great uh, band director that, that started that year, uh, Mrs. Paula Humphrey. I have her to, to blame for, for starting this uh, saxophone <laughs> career. Um, but she started me on saxophone in seventh grade, and um, I was very fortunate to have great band programs through Kennedy Public School in Scarborough and um, Dr. Norman Bethune Collegiate Institute, uh, where I was in band programs with Miss Summers and Mr. Carpenter over there. And under the guidance of Ms. Mrs. Humphrey's husband, uh, Mr. Rick Humphrey, um, oh. who was the jazz band director at the time. And, and through that guidance, I was able to sort of teach myself how to play saxophone through, through that, that process. Mm -hmm. Um, so early on, I was, you know, steeped in a very a busy band program and was sort of, you know, the, the um, saxophone thing was, you know, I, I, I'm doing all right with this, but um, <laughs> I was teaching myself the, the material. Uh, my dad was able to um, find syllabi from the RCM to get me through saxophone repertoire at the time. And then um, saxophone never really was a career option for me. I was convinced I was going to follow my parents' footsteps in physiotherapy or sports medicine or something like that mm -hmm. until, um, I remember, a, a Music Fest Nationals in Ottawa. It was, uh, in my 11th grade. Um, it was also some anniversary of the Japanese and Canadian diplomatic relationship. So, um, the, the Yamaha being the headline sponsor of the event sent over the Yamaha Symphonic Band, which is a oh, ensemble comprised of the instrument makers at the Yamaha factory. So uh, that, that concert was great. I, I've never seen a band concert where like, you know, you're at the National Arts Center filled with high school students screaming, standing ovation for every piece that they play. <laughs> it was just incredible. And then um, at the very beginning of the concert, I was just confused because the principal saxophonist came on with two saxophones. And so I was thinking, oh, maybe there's like a jazz piece or something and and, and it's jazz. not uncommon to switch between saxophones for that and then right before intermission the um sa uh, the conductor steps off the podium picks up the second saxophone without wetting, wetting the reed and just like nails this saxophone concerto and that that uh, person was nobuya sugawa who wow. is like in the saxophone community is sort of like a legendary be person <laughs> legendary being <laughs> uh but but he's certainly a musical hero to a lot of people and when I saw him perform, I, in, in my mind immediately, it was like, I need to try that or at least give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And so that put me on the path to audition, um, sort of blindly and naively thinking like I was like a hot shot, like I, I'm going <laughs> to make it. And thank goodness I made it into U of T where I was very humbled very early, um, and, uh, worked really hard and have been gracious enough or been very lucky enough to have the opportunities to 
progressed through great programs through the University of Toronto, Northwestern University, University of Michigan and Michigan State. And, and yeah. you know, that's, you know, um, so it began with, you know, seeing this person that looked like me. Um, and then, you know, happily ever after. And like another fun story is that <laughs> right as I was about to start my DMA at Michigan State, uh, Mr. Sugawa actually visit, visited Michigan State and I got to play for him. And then I told him, like, you're the reason that I play saxophone. And he's like, Aww. oh, no. You know, and, and we had a fun <laughs> drink of, over that. And then the next summer, um, in my favorite saxophone shop in Michigan, Meridian Winds, um, they always bug me with all the newest gear. And um, yeah, I Brendan love Lagan, videos. Yeah. <laughs> Brendan Lagan uh, sent me this video of the saxophone that came across his bench. And it was an artist select model uh, handpicked by Nobu Yusugawa. And that's the saxophone that I play today. Oh, wow. Um, so it's just a lot of things came full circle from that, like, initial inspiration to the, the tool that I use every day to teach, perform, and all that. Sorry, right. that, that took way longer than no, I thought. No, no, that's okay. No, that's <laughs> it's such your story, a, man. Yeah, it's such a beautiful story. <laughs> I love especially full circle stories like that, where the source of your inspiration somehow came back to be you know, an integral part of your existence now and, and why you do what you do. So that's really, really awesome. Thanks yeah. for sharing that. Yeah. And the other thing uh, is, because Kate and I are talking about this basically every episode, but just the power of seeing someone who looks like you doing your thing. Absolutely. Uh, and, and how important it is when we're talking about, you know, in band land anyway, diversity inclusion when we're picking music or we have guest conductors come in or anything like that. It's just so important. And I kind of want to talk about your dad just because I think he's so cool. <laughs> he's going to love this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, like we've, I remember I was, uh, I got asked to do this Chinese New Year's gig at the Toronto Center for the Arts. I don't know what it's called now. It's called something else. But anyway, but uh, yeah, I met, your dad was in the trumpet section with me and it was just the most pleasant, joyful experience. And he was just so into it. And uh, I remember he had a brand new trumpet at the time and I was really jealous, but <gasps> he, no. <laughs> he, he is part of the reason why I'm the gear nerd that I am, you know? Oh, I can see that. I can see that. Runs except, in the family. <laughs> yeah, except trumpet mouthpieces cost, you know, $50. Saxophone mouthpieces go up to 200 It's a yeah. much different habit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I was going to use the, oh, but we have to buy four of them excuse, but you guys also have to buy. Well, buy four of yeah. them, plus the reeds, <laughs> plus all the accessories, plus someone's got the new new thing, new gadget, doohickey, and yeah. I, have to, I have to have it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, as a student at MSU, you did a DMA in saxophone performance and a master's in music theory. So we were wondering how your role as a theorist affects your role as a performer and a teacher, maybe even vice versa, how all of these different facets of, of your musicianship influence each other. Yeah, I, this is something that is near and dear to my heart just because um, Kate, Kate and I went to the University of Toronto together and we were just talking about how uh, we were in a music theory class together. And um, as, as someone that's done so many performance degrees, I never thought I would ever belong in a music theory program. I just, I, I still don't think I'm a very clever person, but um, it just goes to show you when you have great mentors and are surrounded by great people that, you know, anything is possible. Sure, that sounds cheesy, but I, I really mean that. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I started the DMA at Michigan State University um, with the full intention of just like, all right, my friends have made fun of me. I've been in school for so long. This is it. I'm done. 
I'll, I'll be done with this. And then, of course, um, my first uh, class I have at Michigan State University is this like survey of analytical te techniques by Dr. Lee Van Handel. Um, and then she sort of planted the seed that like, hey, you, you, it, you, you seem like a very great teacher. You command the, the material very well. We'd love to see if you would like love to or we'd love to have you sort of apply well, have you apply for the theory program. And at that point, I, I was like, sure, why not? I'm here anyway. <laughs> I'm in my terminal degree. It's so stressful. I'm working ridiculous hours. Why not add another theory degree, you know, just to round out the set. And um, so I, I slapped together a portfolio together of, you know, old musicology papers, old analysis papers, and just had no idea what I was getting into. And, you know, fast forward to the end of it. Um, I, I will say the theory degree was probably one of the hardest things I've had to, had to do in my life <laughs> in terms of the amount of work I had to balance professionally and as a student um, through my teaching, through both the saxophone area and theory area. And the conversations I was having with people, it was just so much at any given time, but I would do it all over again because I really think that having those conversations with those people, especially at Michigan State, really changed me fundamentally, not only as like a musician, but as a person and pedagogue, um, just because that part that program in particular has such a strong emphasis on theory pedagogy and with all these DEI initiatives, making ways or talking about ways to make programming and, and structuring the curriculum to be much more inclusive, to mm -hmm. be much more engaging and much more relevant to the skills that our students are going to need beyond theory classroom. So, um, yeah, in, in everything that I do, if when I talk about sort of the, the pillars of my artistic identity, I always tell my students I'm a performer, I'm an educator and um, uh, wow, I can't even recall that now, teacher, educator and uh, a scholar. Uh, but um, and all those things are intertwined. As a performer, I'm using concepts from my music theory background to support building an interpretation. And as a teacher, I'm using my experience as a performer to inform the way I teach so that mm -hmm. students can find ways to draw relevant connections to the material that they're learning. And uh, when I am teaching, I I'm trying to actively uh, pick musical examples that are inclusive. And I try to draw from living composers when I can, for examples, when I try to demo anything through whatever I'm teaching, I try to use music that I've performed or that I know is relevant to the field right now. Yeah. Um, well, no, I, I was, I was interested in this, your answer to this question, because it, it was, uh, I, I'm very truthful with my relationship to theory whenever it comes to how I was, uh, you know, in, in my undergrad and such. And I remember my first year, I failed theory and had to work really hard to get back up. And I always hated it. It was like, me it was medicine mm. to me that I didn't want to take. And I didn't understand <laughs> how it was connected to performance. And well, you could kind of understand why it was perform uh, connected to conducting. But um, it actually wasn't until I started teaching here at Cambridge College and have to teach theory <laughs> that I, uh, you know, I saw finally, much too late in my life, the importance of, um, of, of theory when it comes to, you know, understanding and interpreting music, um, be it as a performer or as a conductor. And also, as you mentioned, as a teacher and, uh, and how, how we can save some time in education uh, t telling our students some of the theoretical things that they're hearing. My thing sure. is I, now that I'm pumped about it, I won't shut up about it and I give them too much information. <laughs> Like they like they need to know the flat well, I, thirteen above the whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, like it, I think it's important also to show that excitement from the front of the classroom. You know, mm -hmm. when you're talking about a Beethoven sonata for the ninety sixth time, 
teacher might not be as enthused about it, but you know, to teach form, Beethoven's not the only example of sonata form, right? Or any. Um, so, so I, again, I, I go back to when when you're seeing someone at the front of the classroom, classroom be excited about what they're talking about. I think it's this great opportunity to um, cultivate this idea that this is something that's relevant. I mean, you go into any other field, you can't separate being able to talk about your craft from you know doing the thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, if you're a rocket scientist, you have to be able to talk about basic arithmetic at some point, right? Yeah. And I think. So many performing musicians just go by, well, I developed this interpretation because I feel it this way. And that's such an ambiguous term that's so loaded, but like empty at the same time. And I, I think like the artists that are truly compelling really have a, a great understanding of what's happening. And it's not to say that they're going to write a new textbook on how to like, you know, resolve a cadence, but their musical understanding is grounded in such a good a way of understanding the material and to be able to communicate that ultimately we're trying to communicate with our music right so yeah. why deny ourselves of the tools um to do so right yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely amen mm. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and and, and the, the only other little thing i'll just really hang point out that that you yet you said is making sure that we, you know we're, we aren't using that beethoven thing for the 60th time uh or that mozart example for the 60th time um and i and you know music theory especially at least when i was coming up was very um it was it was music theory of 18th century white guys <laughs> that's what it was um and now just to hear you speak about how um you're wanting to make a difference in that and your teaching as well is just it's so exciting and gives me hope for the future. Yeah, yeah and, and there's this growing <laughs> abundance of resources. So there's no excuse, I think, anymore to say like, well, you know, this everything's just neatly packaged in this textbook. So I'm just going to work out of that. But there's just increasing number of resources online, like theorists yeah. helping theorists, uh, advocates helping theorists uh, um, be able to provide these materials. I mean, one of the big ones that we advocate for is the music theory examples by women.com. That's a great organization. They're, they've been, they're doing a lot of great things, um, mm -hmm. this month in, you know, the month of March to advocate for bringing awareness to underrepresented uh, people. So, um, check them out. Yeah. We're going to, it's going to be in the episode links. It's yeah. going to be in the episode links. Um, one thing uh, I, I, I have gained much immense joy from during the pandemic, I know those two things do not go together, <laughs> but um, has been seeing all of the great things that you're doing. And uh, yeah, I go on Facebook every day. I'm like, hmm, what's Jeffrey up to today? And <laughs> it's always some wonderful content. And, um, you know, being thrust into the pandemic, many of us, uh, especially those who might not be connected to an institution yet, uh, have had to pivot uh, it, when it comes to what are we going to do, how are we going to contribute to our, our field? And, and you've just been doing so much, uh, be it like just little social media posts of you playing something, but you've started a YouTube channel that I am in love with well, called uh, <laughs> Taking It From The Top. So I was wondering if, if you could tell us about the, that channel in particular, uh, yeah. why why'd you start it and who are you hoping it will reach? Sure. Oh, this is great. Um, it. It's this channel that I've been, um, it's been a couple years in the making in terms of like, oh, I want to do this, but I don't have time. But then, you know, when the pandemic hit, it was sort of like, all right, I have time. Let's just, let's, let's just make <laughs> this happen. Right. 
one way or another. And, and one thing that, you know, if we can go back to sort of like my origin story, mm-hmm. was that I was a student that like had all this passion that wanted to do well, especially when I saw um, Nobu Sugawa perform. It was sort of like, okay, well, who else is in the field? I had no idea where to begin. Um, I, I And, you know, private lessons were not an option for me at the time. So I was just sort of on my own to sort of figure things out. And um, so now that I've had this opportunity to study with some of the, the greatest uh, uh, musicians out there and have been able to connect with some of my own musical heroes, I, I find this is like an opportunity for me to give back to the community in a way mm-hmm. to reach like me when I was um, younger to, to sort of connect to those students that, that, that have all the want, but have no access to resources. So um, hope by, and I'm hoping that through this uh, YouTube channel that I'm able to uh, connect with those students. And um, yeah. the, the premise of it is that I just get so many requests for like, well, how did you do this in this video? Or like, what's your suggestion for teaching this thing? I, I get so many of that on like Instagram, especially. So um, I, I use that as the, the um, foundation for content. So mm-hmm. a lot of the topics that come up are, are suggestions from, from people that are asking me how to do these things. And so my, my take on it is, well, here's like a short tutorial. Um, of course, I'm not going to reveal all of my magic tricks, but <laughs> certainly I want to be able to, to help people achieve what they want to on the instrument and to yeah. also feature people that are doing great things. So at the beginning of each month, I, 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 I'm reaching out to colleagues that are doing relevant and exciting research in, in music pedagogy and as a way of reaching beyond just saxophonists because, you know, you, you folks here don't necessarily care how I play my B-flat, but you might care about how I practice playing <laughs> I it in tune or, or, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's this idea of using the platform that I've been fortunate enough to cultivate over my years of, of training and finding a way to give that back a little bit to the community that, you know, raised me, essentially. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. I personally also didn't take private lessons on my instrument until I got to university. I had mm-hmm. been taking piano lessons, but my education on my instrument came from school and what I figured out on my own. And I know as soon as I got my hands on a computer, I was looking up YouTube videos and things like that as well. And I'm sure I would have found yours if this was, you know, back in the day. So I, I bet there are a lot of people out there that are really going to benefit from the content that you're putting out there. And I think some of the most powerful initiatives come from when the people who are starting them are trying to reach like a younger version of themselves, like the mm-hmm. kinds of people that, you know, they used to be, because it just keeps it really genuine and real and and relevant. So Thanks for doing that. I think it's really, really yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I try to be honest. Life's too short to be anything <laughs> less than genuine, right? So, you know, I, I'm a huge nerd. I'm a huge dork. Um, you'll see that in the videos, I guess, for better or worse. But, you know, you, a little bit of Jeffrey every week, you know. <laughs> weekly dose. Yeah, that's awesome. Weekly dose. <laughs> I should start opening it's with like it. Here's a weekly C. dose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you do have a great episode on uh, musician wellness. And you've spoken about your own struggles, um, you know, as a performer and having to reevaluate aspects of your playing physically as well as mentally. So could you speak about your experience and maybe some wellness tips, uh, things for musicians to keep in mind while practicing and performing? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, this is something I care about very deeply in my teaching because, you know, uh, or, or maybe not. Um, in the saxophone world, there's this uh, higher, faster, louder mentality that like all, <laughs> that's like, all the notes as high as you can, <laughs> as fast as you can, yeah. as loud as you can. And that's sort of like is prioritized to a fault. Um, and for me in my teaching, I tell my students like, you know, th that's something to strive for, but I care less about the actual tempo marking and I care about like, musical fluency. Are, are you truly creating music or is this just like squeaks for the sake of making squeaks? You know, which I do, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm guilty of that, but you know, I, I chose the saxophone. Um, but in terms of the musician's wellness thing, my, my journey sort of began as a graduate student at Northwestern. You know, when I was at University of Toronto, I was this hotshot student that, you know, was playing all the time and like, you know, I was doing fine, you know, gigging every so often and, um, it was doing well for myself. And then I remember my first studio class at Northwestern and hearing one of the undergraduates play and being very humble. <laughs> and I was just like, well, if that's the standard of the third year undergrad and here I am the master's student, I've got yeah. work to do. And, and then all of a sudden I was just sort of doubting myself. If, did I belong here? Am I going to be good enough? Am I going to make it? Like, am I going to complete this degree? And this was like week one of being living away from home, being in a new environment. Um, yeah. So like all these things combined um, led to this like sort of death spiral to the point where whenever I picked up the instrument, it, it I just felt like crippled. Like I, I just, and, and to make up for it, I just had to like double down on the practicing, you know, like, uh, mm -hmm. which led to some unhealthy habits. So in terms of performance anxiety, like that, that that's something that I had, I, I still struggle with, you know, but um, some things that have helped me um, are to open up to your network of people that are immediately around you because the people that care about you want to see you succeed, you know, and they want to help. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that's helped me is to be able to, and then this is something I sort of got through um, practicing yoga, was this idea of mindfulness and being able to let go of things that you can't control. So in a stressful situation, being able to take stock of the factors that you can control and the things that you can't. The things that I can't control are the manner in which, I, how I prepare for the, for the competition leading up to the day. But what I can't control is the repertoire of the people are playing, how the other person is going to sound that day, what the judges are going to think. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm walking into that competition as like, I'm just trying to be a better version of myself than yesterday, then, and if I did that, that's great. Prize money is, you know, great. But then when you win a competition, like who really cares, like, you know, two months from now, you know, and so the, 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 the universal constant in your life is you. Um, so as long as you're in this like long term uh, process of growth, uh, you know, talking about growth mindset uh, as something as a motivator, um, that's something that's helped me a lot. And then also learning how to reframe things so that like, I, I'm generally a very like introverted, very pessimistic person. <laughs> So this is something that I've had to retrain to, and reframe um, so that um, that it's it's not like you're trying to delude yourself into thinking something is what it isn't. But, you know, reframing things can often um, change something from a destructive to, to a, a constructive um, uh, mentality. Sort of like yeah. if you're having trouble with a passage in a piece of music, don't just try to practice it the same way, like 16,000 times like I did and then sort of get it get get the lick once yeah. on your 15th try but reframe it as well what what can i learn from this right now you know what, what is what is the learning opportunity uh, learning opportunity right here and let's isolate it and, and work through it and then 
you build consistency that way. So that, that was my spiel on performance anxiety, which mm -hmm. eventually led to um, finding some success in a competition circuit and then um, having a really, really exciting time at the, U at the University of Michigan where I was just playing with all sorts of ensembles involved with a bunch of commissioning projects, a bunch of competitions. And I was just playing so much that these gave up because I was just mm -hmm. practicing so much. So I developed tendonitis in both of my hands. It was a scary time because like trying to open a doorknob was, was painful. Oh, or wow. I remember the, the instance when I was trying to cut a potato and I just like couldn't because like my hand, like it hurt That would be the much. end of me. That would be the end of me if I could not. I mean, I love food too. So like when I, when I, I can't associate like pain with food that's yeah. Just, ugh. <laughs> yeah you know like, so so that 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 set me back um and at that point i had to again reevaluate how i approached the instrument and i so I, I withdrew from all the competitions which was tough because it would have been my last hurrah for a lot of these ones like i would have aged out right. of all of these things and i felt like i was just on the cusp of some success. I, I will tell all of my students too that I am Mr. Honorable Mention, Mr. Second Place. But you know, I, I turned out okay. So it's okay if you don't <laughs> win that first chair. Yeah. It's okay if you get that honorable mention because you know, again, it, it it's fine. Um but then um I took the summer to see an occupational therapist, took care of my wrists while I was played a lot of Pokemon Go. It Pokemon <laughs> Go really saved me that, that summer and that and some year. really great friends that eventually got me back into the gym so that I could develop and strengthen my body in a way that I could stay ahead of of, of um my performance needs so that like so so at that point I took very careful stock of how and what I was eating. Though even though like Facebook says otherwise. Um <laughs> Um, my friend told me I was on the seafood diet. You seafood and you eat it. And, uh, that's certainly something I live by. But then, you know, working out and, and taking a form of exercise that worked for me, you know, strength training is not for everyone. But I really think that, especially as wind players, but like for everyone in general, to be able to take stock of your, your strength, your mobility and cardiovascular systems, it, it, it doesn't matter what form it takes. It could be a walk. It could be something as, as regimented as like a strength training program, but like taking care of your body so that it can take care of you when you're on stage is a very important sentiment in my own teaching. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, musicians wellness, we got to take care of ourselves because we're the, we're the ones that are going to do it. Yeah. And I, I highly, 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 highly recommend, uh, Jeffrey's YouTube channel, but especially that episode, uh, when I listened to it, I was just like, yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. And it's something that, uh, I certainly, especially the physical, side of it now I'm, i think about now uh conducting more and more and you know i'm like oh i'm really gonna show this offbeat now here we go and it's like oh that was a little too much <laughs> right. um so just being uh, aware of, of things that are going on and and like you said not being afraid to uh talk to someone um be it a mentor or be it an expert in you know and uh, uh, who can help you um but yeah mm -hmm. it's great and I, I i also have to say uh i have forced all of my saxophone students to subscribe to your <laughs> YouTube oh. channel. It's yeah, because <laughs> well, as you. as a non saxophonist who's half having to teach saxophone lessons, uh, it's very scary for me. But I'm I'm grateful for wonderful people who are putting out great content that's very easily digestible. I I must add. Um, so yeah, so thank you. For doing yeah, that. of course. Yeah, it's a good time. It's, it's a learning process for me too because it's just like. 
I could be excited about this topic, but how can I make other people excited about it too? You know, yeah. I found a new Altissimo A fingering, like three people in the audience <laughs> care, you know? But... <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, accessible education. That That's really important because yeah. we, we can't just tailor to that like top tier of, of, of folks. We have got to find a way to get everyone involved, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of talked about the pandemic and how maybe that was one of the triggers to starting this YouTube channel with all this time. But one of one of the other uh, silver linings, I kind of stopped talking like this about the pandemic, but one of the <laughs> silver linings of the pandemic has been to see uh, our eyes open to remote technology and, and how it can bring communities together. And one such community uh, was the uh, International Saxophone Academy. So I was wondering if you could talk about uh, your involvement with the Academy and, and about the Academy. Yeah. So, um, as I was saying, like, um, I've had this opportunity to work with some of the, the greats in our field and like even beyond North America to, mm -hmm. to travel to Europe and meet some of my, my musical heroes, like my, my grand teacher, like Arno Bornkamp, who taught Wallace Halliday at University of Toronto. Um, last weekend, I was just on a Zoom call with him, right? And, and those are one of those things where, you know, with the miracle of technology, like you said, silver linings, we can connect people with that. So. Um, this was not my idea. Um, so my dear colleagues, uh, John Winteringham and Lily Winteringham started a summer academy with this in mind that they had access to all these great artists and new students that wanted to connect with them. So why not create a online platform in the summer to connect worldwide faculty with a worldwide student body? And that was a great success as a summer academy. And then they figured, well, why not take it on the road and let's see if we can make this a uh, year-long program, which is where they, they brought me in as mm -hmm. the associate, uh, associate director. You'd think I'd know my own job title. <laughs> um, but it, So we, we launched in November and we have a rotating line of, of, of faculty presenters and guest faculty presenting on a variety of topics, not just saxophonists, but also conductors, composers, uh, saxophone technicians, non-saxophonists that are part of other rosters. Um, to build a community of online learning. And so each month uh, students get, you know, they, they pay a subscription to the academy, but they get access to events that are hosted by, you know, um, the, the saxophone professor at, at the, you know, the, the conservatory in Amsterdam gets to, get, gets to teach us someone in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, you <laughs> <Right>. know, <laughs> or that like a student in China gets access to the professor at the University of Michigan for a master class, you know, like creating opportunities where there wouldn't have been. And so, you know, that that's grown in a number of ways, um, including something I'm really excited about is that, you know, hearkening back to my origins as a student that was going up through high school, but didn't have access to this education. The Interna International Saxophone Academy right now is starting uh, partnerships with high school programs. Um, we're, we're looking to reach out to band directors and, and people that can um, uh, oversee uh, district-wide events to see if we can partner with them to reach those saxophone students. So if there's anybody out there that wants to build partnerships with the International Saxophone Academy, um, uh, reach out. I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about saxophone all day, probably <laughs> to a fault, but um, I, I'd love to find a way to see if we can reach out to you because this is truly a sax international saxophone academy mm -hmm. uh, with a global reach. And we'd love to bring this vast global network of uh, resources to your classroom. That's awesome. We'll make sure to include uh, this as a link in our episode links as well mm -hmm. so that anybody who wants to get connected with you uh, can can go ahead and do so. Yeah. 
Uh, so this is something I personally love to ask everybody that I get the chance to ask. Uh, as a performer, you've commissioned and performed many new works for the saxophone, uh, many of which are by living composers, people you know personally in some cases. Why is this important to you, performing music by, by living composers or just performing and creating you know, new music in general? Oh my gosh, this is such a loaded question. For all the best reasons, <laughs> I think that like, there are so many aspects that we can... Um, dive into this. Uh, this was something that I was fortunate to have been a part of, like right from undergrad, right from the beginning, because uh, Wallace Halliday is such a new music advocate. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so this was something that I was very hungry to do right from the beginning, was to see who I could be working with. And, you know, taking, um, taking from that um, sort of uh, uh, mentality, like how can I build relationships with, with people to create art together and to see how we can track each other's growth and sort of speed up that growth process so we can all see success in, in a multitude of ways, right? So I always tell my students, it's the, the one one-off composition world premiere on your NASA program is not going to get you famous. It's that, it's that relationship <laughs> that you cultivate with someone over the course of time where you commission a bunch of pieces, some are great, some are less great, but that's fine. You're growing together. Mm -hmm. um, so, so again, for me, a lot of this commissioning, a lot of this um, performing of new music, it's about building relationships with people, building community and, and going back to what, what y'all were saying earlier, it's just uh, finding opportunities to find ways to represent our community in our art. Right. Um, so um, doing everything that we can, you know, it's one thing to talk about advocacy and to say like, oh, I'll share this article or I'll write this thing on Facebook and like check out. But but it's different when, when you program something um, and or not just program something, but to be actively thinking about that inconsistently and consistently thinking about that in your programming, in your teaching. And, you know, I, I think in, uh, one of the common excuses for not doing this well, like, I don't know anybody that's doing this. Well, we, we literally have departments of composers at these institutions. <laughs> yeah. We literally have students learning the thing. So why not give them an opportunity to change the world, like one step at a time, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, uh, commissioning new music, I, I get to work with such incredible people and meet people that are genuinely interested in hearing the weird sounds I can make on my instrument and then <laughs> being able to showcase the weird sounds that I make on my instrument to inspire people to make more weird sounds. Um, again, so, so like, you know, there's this opportunity for a growth as a community to bring people into the world of saxophone. And, you know, sometimes it involves multiphonics. Sometimes it doesn't have to involve slap tongues, you know, but, um, you know, making great music with great people is so important to me for so many reasons. Yeah. Cause I, I was, I was thinking back to whenever, uh, we had, uh, actually Dr. Eric Lung on the podcast. Um, and he was talking about, Go uh, cats. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I forgot he was he was there for a second, um, but mm -hmm. um, but he talked about the importance of you know what you program says a lot about you, and as, even uh, you know especially as a, as a soloist being able to to help the greater composer community the greater music com community by commissioning these new works, um, you're really putting a, a stamp on it yourself um, by having music that's written for you. And as much as I love Glazunov and Creston and everything, <laughs> uh, but to have have this to grow the repertoire is really, really great to see. Yeah. And I really have like some really 
dear friends to thank like uh well he he always ends up on these podcasts for some reason but i always mention like connor <laughs> mikula who who brought me onto the novus new music team and, and that's just a non-profit that i help run mm. which is sort of um it, it's a platform for promoting emerging artists and connecting um uh young emerging composers with emerging uh, saxophonists and 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 having that platform has helped me grow in more ways than, than I anticipated. So we talked about like, you know, building community, but um, by giving me this platform to commission new folks, it, it inspired me to take on like a lot of other initiatives as well and, and be more proactive in outreach. And, and one of the big projects that, that really inspired me to be a much stronger advocate was um, the Women in Music platform. Um, mm. it, it, if I could like, go on a tangent for oh, a yeah, second. Um, I remember our, <laughs> this was before I joined on, but the first call for scores that Novus did was this blind call for scores. We just want a piece for saxophone and ensemble. And this is going to be a blind process. Um, so submit your piece and you'd be considered. And so we received, I think it was like 81 submissions from like 17 countries. Wow. But then wow. at the end of the process, even though we had declared it to be a blind uh, process, all the judging would, would not have names or whatever, we found out of those 81 applications, only one person was female, which was crazy to us. So we wanted to yeah. find a way to use our platform to allow um, uh, allow people to express their perspectives. So then we started the Women in Music campaign, um, which has al allowed me to be a much louder advocate than I normally would be, because I'm a very introverted person. <laughs> but you know, it got to a point where I just felt like, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to have this platform. I, I need to be able to help other people. So by highlighting the work of the composers that I'm working with to highlight the, the research that my colleagues are doing, that, that's such important work, thinking about building community through the platform that you've created, you know. Yeah, no, it's great. And I guess kind of unrelated, but um, <laughs> I know whenever I... Uh... When I got out of my out of my master's degree at the University of Toronto, um, I ended up starting this group called Toronto Winds, which was like a professional level uh, little chamber wind ensemble. And I thought I was being so innovative and how great it is. There's so much repertoire for the, you know wind octets, wind dectets, and and so on, uh, and well beyond that as well. Um, and I was so happy to see um, that the this uh, Maryland chamber. Uh, wind festival uh, and and your involvement in it. So I was wondering if you could talk about the the festival, uh, or not the festival rather, but um, the group as <laughs> mm -hmm. as it is, and and your involvement with uh, with the group. Yeah. So it starts when I started my DMA at Michigan State University, um, being the new uh, DMA one of the new DMA students at Michigan State, and got to work with a bunch of uh, colleagues there and. One of the DMA conducting students at the time, Dr. Tyler Austin, he quickly became a very great friend. And after a few months, he had pulled me aside after rehearsal and said, hey, we'd love to have you on with this Maryland Wind Festival thing. Do you want to join on? And as the young hotshot guy, I had no idea what this festival was, but like, yes, <laughs> someone wants to play, absolutely. And, and, and had no idea the impact that this group of people would have on my life. Um, it's just one of those things when, when you're young enough, don't say no to anything. You, you mm -hmm. don't know anything about the organization. Someone approaches you because they want you to play with them. Just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but and, and, and in many ways, I was just wondering, like, maybe I was auditioning for him this whole time. I was in band ah. under his baton, right? But anyway, yeah. um, so so this group is is this modular ensemble, like like Dylan was saying, it's like a chamber winds setting plus saxophone. Yay! Um, <laughs> but um, it's a festival that takes 
place in like the, the Washington County area in, in Maryland. I, I think I'm getting that right. You think after eight years in the States, my geography would be a little US better? Geography. We'll do it in the fact <laughs> check. But I, I just know it's in Maryland and I get to travel with, with my friends to make music in the community. And um, so at the time, the, the Maryland Winds Festival at the time was we would meet for like a week and a half of, of performances in the area. And a part of that included the performance of traditional repertoire, but there was always a, uh, a composer in residence program, outreach programs to local schools to teach. And, and that meant a lot to me to get the opportunity to, mm -hmm. to, teach, out, to teach students outside of major metropolitan areas. So, uh, and, and that group has, has since become the Maryland Chamber Winds, um, which, which, which hosts performances at the Maryland Wind Festival. So the, right. it's, it's a much bigger organization now, uh, recently released their first album. Yeah. And, um, I, I, I was just right place at the right time, I guess, because after my first trial period with the group, they worked me hard. They, they had me, well, we need <laughs> to play this solo piece. We need to play this solo piece, bring this instrument, <laughs> do this and that. And like, yes, 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 yes. And then at the end of the first festival, um, is very, very fortunate. Well, that festival was really great because that, that cultivated a relationship with Cassie Wheeland and with whom I've been able to play a bunch of her solo saxophone stuff. And that mm -hmm. was great. And then the following season, Theo Chandler was going to be the, uh, the composer in residence. And um, Tyler Austin said, well, he's got this crazy idea of writing a saxophone concerto. Would you want to play it? And I'm like, well, of course, <laughs> of course, just say yes. And, and yeah. so yeah. Um, that that is a feature track on the album and um anyway so my role with the organization has grown on to take over um, their social media presence as well right. um and it, it's just so nice to be surrounded by a group of people that really care about the growth of that repertoire the way that people can access music um, the way that we talk about music so that it's accessible and and, and that collection of people at the maryland chamber winds are deeply inspirational inspir oh coffee's catching up to me is deeply <laughs> inspirational people um so i always while the the rehearsal days are long performance treks are long while we could do that um it was very it was so worth it at the end you were exhausted but you knew that like mm -hmm. you had done a lot of good work with a lot of people that mean well um so th the maryland chamber winds have been such a central part of my summers and i look forward to when we can make music again and when we were unable to this summer, this just shows the resiliency of resiliency, resilience of, of chamber music, just because as everything was getting shut down, our, our own initial conducting symposium was shut down. So in summer of 2020, we were supposed to host a, a conducting summit, mm -hmm. but instead we were able to pivot to a digital premieres series where we commissioned six composers to write little miniatures for subgroups of the ensemble. Right. So even in the midst of the pandemic, the chamber wins because we were smaller in size, but we were able to pivot very well. Um, we were still able to produce original content over the summer and into the fall. And, um, and then when we can meet in person again, the digital premieres project is going to be something that becomes our next album project. We're, we're hoping. Um, so again, it just shows that chamber music is just so relevant to what we're we're doing as yeah. as classically trained musicians um it's not often that you can develop that kind of musical relationship in such an intimate setting like you were saying dylan like it's a small group of people but like just so powerful of a medium to be able to mm -hmm. communicate um across all these instruments it's also taught me the the art of playing softly and and huh? <laughs> to be accommodating <laughs> um it, it's been great uh 
because when you're the only saxophonist in the group, uh, you you don't you're, you're oh, not yeah. trying to compete with all your quartet mates to get out of the texture, <laughs> but instead, like you're learning to back off to blend uh, because all the instruments um, are are different, right? As opposed yeah. to the saxophone quartet and the the art of of um, of, of side keys um, blend, and stuff. Yeah. Is... <laughs> Well, yeah. I, I never told you this, but my actually my definition of a true pianissimo comes from Wallace Holiday, which is kind of hard to believe. But it's I've never heard a human play so quietly and so beautifully. It's like he's so quiet. It's like right in front of your face. But it was uh, he was playing the Bolcom Concert Suite yeah. uh, with Dennis That's... Wick. And I was just like, how did you do that? It was the most impressive <laughs> thing I've ever heard in my life. Yes. But, uh, but yeah. Um, and that organization, it's just it's so so cool to see all of the different aspects of it the different arms of that organization and f and from the outside what what makes me most happy about seeing your involvement with it as well as all the people i don't know is it, you all really seem like you're genuinely there for the music and you're there for the friendship and you're there for the 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 experiences that are being created and not not for the gig yeah um, which is yeah that's that's my favorite thing to see in an organization like that yeah we, when we were called the Maryland Wind Festival, we would also call it the Maryland Wind Family. It, it's Aww. still the ongoing hashtag Aww. too. So. Yeah, it, it's that's really nice. Yeah, it just shows the the power of, that like the chamber music experience has to bond people together across. Like now, I'm the international person, right? <laughs> you know, but like across Canadian. across these uh, boundaries uh, of, of space and time. Well, that's more profound yeah. than I meant it. <laughs> It's amazing how much of a difference it makes when you're surrounded by people who inspire you, people who inspire each other to be in a group like that. It's it's amazing what you can accomplish. And speaking of inspiring people, there we go, Dylan. I'm I'm doing the segue thing. That was an excellent segue. Um, wow. Yeah, right. <laughs> I ruined it by pointing it out. <laughs> you can edit uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm leaving it. So, uh, Jeffrey, you've been able to play under some really wonderful conductors. Dr. Julian McKay at U of T, who, of course, Dylan and I both have also worked with extensively, Dr. Mallory Thompson at Northwestern, Dr. Kevin all at Michigan State. We're probably missing some other really <laughs> fantastic people as well. Um, but are there any ensemble or just musical lessons in general that you carry with you that you learned from working with these people? Yeah, I, I, uh, I loved when that popped up on the list of questions that you all are going to ask. <laughs> I was trying to think, what what's... And, and each of them has had such a profound impact on my life. I mean, like like in that list there, most of the conductors that I've worked with were are, were female. So from the beginning, it was just, it, in my mind, it was just normal that, that, yeah. that women musicians, female identifying musicians, that you can do it. There's mm -hmm. room in the field. There's no excuse why we shouldn't be be uh, uh, reacting more and, and, and programming um, accordingly, you know, because our musical community is so represented in these higher echelons of the field. Um, but thinking more practically, um, Dr. McKay was someone that taught me the art of like silence, the art of slow music. She just has this way of carrying herself in, in, in doing any of like Warren Benson's stuff or any <laughs> yeah. kind of slow music that she just has such command uh, of, of the stage command of the, the ensemble. It was, was just simple, slow, glacially moving gestures and i just thought she she taught me the beauty of that was that like not everything has to be this higher faster louder but like but you know like dylan was saying even saxophonists can't impress you with like deafening silence right um <laughs> believe it or not yeah. 
And then um, when I went to Northwestern, um, Dr. Mallory Thompson, wow, what a what a powerhouse of a musician. Mm -hmm. Um, And with her, um, it was she would fight for every detail in the music. There is no detail worth or there's nothing that's not worth being sought after. And she just taught this professionalism where if you didn't know the score by your first rehearsal, you were unprepared, you were wasting everyone's time. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and so for me, that, that was just, those are some like very like, uh, you know, grow, I grew up very quickly in that ensemble. Let, <laughs> right. Let's just say that. Um, yeah. But, but what was most inspiring was how she was in this room of like just incredible musicians and she would humble everyone with her presence and was just able to draw music out of everyone in such a profound way. She always could dig deeper. And when you thought you couldn't find anything else, she just like keeps going, you know? <laughs> and and, and ju- she was just a person that showed me that there's always a next level. There's always something to dive deeper into. There, there's no detail left unchecked. Um, mm-hmm. And then at Michigan State University with Dr. Sadatal, he was someone that taught me the importance of community through collaboration because at every concert cycle, there was either a composer that was coming through, a faculty or guest soloist, and it was it was like a, a Spartan family, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so he was someone that, that taught me the importance of cultivating a network like that. But like beyond just the transaction of here's my piece, I'll play it, but like really inviting them into a family experience and um, growing together that way and um it's just been so incredible to see him interact with people at like the midwest clinic or something where um you know i think all of us have been at some point but um you know in in this sea of people everyone is connected in in this way and and through dr satatol it was just like wow this is this is we we have an opportunity to be really impactful with what we do because Mm -hmm. you know there i forget how long ago it was there was this like trend of like tweet your profession in like five words but like do it really badly so like mine would be like <laughs> I, I as a living i blow air through a metal tube you know right. kind of thing <laughs> but by doing that you know I, I i'm very fortunate to have the ability to connect with other people that way other people that blow air through other metal tubes but <laughs> but like the ability to connect and affect people right I, I think that's what drives us to keep doing what we do because in the arts, it's easy to say like, well, I'm not curing cancer, but I am forwarding like this social commentary. I am affecting this student that's in the middle of nowhere, Alberta. But like, if, mm-hmm. if this little video helped them get through their day, that that's so important, you know? Um, so anyway, those yeah. are, those are the lessons that I learned from them. And then yeah. like the lot, well, one of my last performances before the pandemic was with the new world symphony with Michael Tilson Thomas at the oh, podium. Wow. And that taught me how to adapt very quickly because there's nothing (laughs) as terrifying as being one of the guest saxophonists and having the conductor like, like him stop the rehearsal and be like, you're the problem. And uh, I was like, okay, (laughs) we'll fix this right now. And, uh, and so that, that's where the DMA kicked in all the side fingerings and and, and alternate fingerings (laughs) came through to find something that worked for him. Um, So yeah, band is is very important. It's it's chamber music on a large scale. You some of your my some of my best friends um, from music school were from that band experience because in addition to um, you know on top of the music theory uh, classroom, the band room is also one in which you can connect with most people across across the school. And in this case, yeah. with some bands, grad students uh, with with undergrads, and that's such an important mm-hmm. experience where. Um, I don't think there are as like I don't think there are the same opportunities in another classes, right? Uh, to to be 
able to interact with so many, so many people across ages and across studios. So mm -hmm. for me, the band experience yeah. was always something that I, I held very near and dear to my heart as I was growing up. And even as a DMA student at Michigan State, um, I, I was playing under Dr. Septetal's baton. Yeah, those are those are really well-rounded lessons. Like all of those snippets of your experience, when you connect them all, create a very well-rounded approach to music and to life. And it's really inspiring to just to hear you talk about those experiences. And it it kind of prompts me to think about mine. I'm sure this is happening for Dylan as well, and will happen for listeners too. To think about what are the things that we've learned from from all of the inspiring people that we've had the chance to work with and totally agree that band is a is a special sort of gathering place for sure of, of people of all walks of life i think yeah i mean in in terms of like being able to be involved i mean community bands are a great way to keep you know adult musicians involved you know the person that Absolutely. like started playing saxophone in sixth grade but wasn't able to before like <laughs> yeah. that it, it's such yeah. an accessible medium in that way I, I can't begin to tell you the number of community bands in like michigan that are just like so darn good yeah. you know um but anyway that that's a whole other because they're full of people who want to be exactly there. That's, yeah. exactly that's the thing right yeah. community yeah. band people blow my mind like yeah. yeah often more dedicated than students i find when it comes to yeah. Uh, playing or was just yeah like you said was being there <laughs> they're very yeah, happy and, to be there and i think like for for those that are in music school right now like really cherish these opportunities that that sometimes you might take for granted like being in a room full of people to share this experience of making music together i mm -hmm. i'm fresh out of the dma and now i get to enjoy the real estate of my parents basement and i get to make <laughs> and the, the most chamber here. music i get to make is by myself when i record myself overdubbing myself but i i miss being in a room with mm -hmm. these people i miss being able to talk about you know how your lessons went and how you got roasted by by your teacher <laughs> Right. But, yeah. you know, th that sense of community and, and those resources that are afforded to you by school, don't don't take any of that for granted. It, yeah. It's uh, it's very different on the other side. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> isn't it? Definitely. Isn't it? Yeah. And I was I was also <laughs> thinking while you were talking about those really great lessons from th three of three giants um, was, well, I had my own inspirational moments with, <laughs> with Dr. Thompson at Symposium. Um, being like, oh my gosh, I am not good enough. And, you know, she made me improve, but I don't know <laughs> if it was for me. But uh, but she does have a way of just like making everyone around her better. Mm -hmm. Like you have no friggin' choice or, or leave the room, either one. <laughs> right. But, like, You're going to yeah. grow here whether you want to <laughs> yeah. or not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was just so incredible uh, to return to Northwestern as an alum for like the yeah. sweet 50 yeah. and then just to see that like you know the the people that have come through the program but are now principal trumpet of like whatever yeah, so insane. like when we were playing like <laughs> the toccata I, one funny story i guess was we were playing the an arrangement of box toccata and fugue and then like i i was in the best seat in the house i was like i was playing baritone saxophone so i was sitting like in front of the trombones low brass and I remember there was like some run that i i had with 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 them and then dr thompson looks at me like we can't hear barry sax i turn around and like i don't know what you want me to do like like <laughs> these are just, these sound. are the superstars here i, I i'm just yeah. here to move my fingers and look like and, and try to look pretty that that's all i'm here for there that the show is really back there and and to be in that room of you know again 
that was probably one of the best professional ensembles I'd ever been in. And in those rehearsals, it was like, we're running through the holes. That's it. And it, it and then like the next time we saw the piece was going to be the performance. And even in those yeah. moments, she was just saying like, that's sharp. That's a wrong note. Do better. You know, and it, even in a group of just seasoned professionals, she's able to dig deep yeah. and just really cultivate something really special in that group of people. Yeah, no, it's really great. And my last kind of like band geeky thing with you in particular. Well, why do I want to apologize? This is the band room podcast. I, yeah, I can be podcast. myself. The, the Canadian news are here yeah, for this. That's why they're here. Um, but yeah. I, I just need to say this because I listen to it uh, embarrassingly, and I'm not joking on a daily basis. My favorite recording of Come Sunday by Omar Thomas is the one that you are in <laughs> uh, at MSU's recording. It is so good. It is so good. There's just details that I I hear in that recording that that uh, Dr. Steadle has has brought through the layers that I don't hear in anyone else's recordings, and it's just so full of life, and I can't help but get up and dance. I love it. I I, w I wasn't going to say this earlier, but like that that piece in particular stands out in my mind in terms of that community building aspect. Mm -hmm. It was just the way that he would invite people to to bring their voice through their parts. You know, if saxophones had a thing, yeah. um, you know, like allow the saxophones like to play out more, follow follow their lead. When when you had these like strange orchestrations of soloists all across the band, really forcing everyone to really listen to each other and like making sure that nuance was the number one thing that was captured. It was not just the notes on the page or the weird rhythms. And, mm -hmm. and then, you know, it was just so incredible to have um, Omar Thomas show up to... Um, campus and then you know from the first tenor saxophone solo from my dear colleague adam epler he was just like you know because you know we <laughs> you know when you build a community of people that deeply care about something it, it's special so that even the composer who's probably lived this piece more than anybody can still still find something new in this thing that they've lived with for so long yeah so so for me that that recording is is really special for so many reasons um i just wish that the barry sax part was a little bit more integrated in the saxophone you hear that omar i wasn't just a i wasn't just another glorified trombone but you know <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding it was, it, it was a great part like the part the parts that counted really counted so i'm I, I'm always going to be an advocate for a more active baritone saxophone. Oh, yeah. That's just oh, yeah. me. Yeah. Kate's next yeah. piece. It was just, just be a big Barry hey, I have a... Last year, yeah. I released a, a solo piece for... Oh, yeah. yeah. I forgot about baritone that. I'm so sorry. Baritone sax and piano so is my first ever commission for Barry sax. And the, the person who commissioned it, Carter Vernon, was a, a student and basically had the same kind of experiences as you, Jeffrey. Like, I want to play more interesting things. I want to play beautiful melodic music where I get to shine and I get to make this massive instrument sound small and sound tender and you know so we had these conversations and it was such a, a fun challenge for me as a composer to create something for you know to, to give somebody a unique kind of opportunity on an instrument that doesn't get the spotlight in that way as often so it's it's awesome to hear people like you talk about how important that is composers out there Write cool stuff for Barry Sachs. <laughs> or any instrument. And I don't know. Bass the clarinet. Trumpet. The trumpet is low ignored. Grass. We have a hard... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm completely kidding. Um, you, anyway. You've got all the iconic orchestral solos. You've got the best parts in brass quintet, you know? Yep. Just, just, just keep hogging it all. 
my life is so hard. You don't. Okay. Anyway, uh, well, since we're on the topic of uh, ensemble, uh, large ensemble experiences, and and uh, and all that, um, I was wondering if if maybe since you're just so well versed both in large ensembles, but in, in, in chamber groups with some really great uh, saxophone quartet things and, and, and Maryland chamber ones, of, of course. Uh, could, you, could you talk about your perspective of being a, a good ensemble player versus being a, a good solo player? Sure. Oh, this in is about 10 seconds, one. that would be great. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, well, honestly, it, it, listen, 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 listen. There's my 10 seconds. It's just the same word over and over and over again. Yeah. Seriously, as a soloist, mm-hmm. as as an ensemble player, um, you know, in, in an ensemble, you're part of this giant machine. So learning to listen across ensemble is so important. Uh, being in those groups has really taught me so much about how to be a cooperative musician um, to be. And that's what ultimately gets you called back for the gig is that if you if you are that person that can lock in right there, it doesn't yep. matter if your resume is like the, the most sparkly thing ever if that you're you've you've paid like ten thousand dollars for a gold-plated saxophone that's got unicorn <laughs> hair holding it together like that doesn't matter if you're if you can't lock into to rhythm and if you can't play in tune okay next right like mm-hmm. that's just the name of the game so yeah. so to be a good ensemble player i think being able to cultivate your ability to listen and lock in and adapt very quickly so like again it all comes down to being able to listen so if you can hear a problem to be able to adapt right away um and you know as an ensemble musician um, i always tell my students that you know a lot of people are really forgiven forgiving of wrong notes but like bad time like that that ruins everything you know and 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 similar it's similar across genres too Mm -hmm. Uh, i I will not say that i'm a jazz saxophonist i'm a jazz enthusiast um but (laughs) of all this all the great jazz musicians that i know their time is impeccable you play a wrong note you can just say it's like the flat 13 that's resolving down (laughs) to something you know uh but if you if you don't play in the pocket if you don't play in good time that that's the first giveaway that you're not going to be a good fit for the group so Mm -hmm. It's something that I think, you know, if we're going to talk about shaping uh, music theory, it's that that those many theory curriculum are very like pr- like they they privilege harmony, they privilege pitch content, um, but we don't talk about rhythm enough, which I think more and more has become a much more useful tool in in staying employed. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and and we don't talk about it very much. I, I remember just like you know there'd be a couple of rhythmic dictations in first and second year um, 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 oral skills, but then after you did your uh, clapping music uh, final with Mark Solomon, <laughs> that that so that 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 was the end of rhythm. Um, yeah. And meanwhile, we're giving students, well, I guess saxophone students, but and, and percussionists are dealing with some of the most rhythmically complex yeah. looking things. Um, but uh, yeah, so in response to the ensemble playing is uh, listen and uh, the important lessons of playing in time and in tune, like in, in that order, really like in time and in tune, but yeah. like, like the, the priority list is like there. <laughs> uh, like it's very small notes, for people who I, cannot I, I see really, his hands. I, I think, I think wrong notes, it, it's fine, but bad time is unforgivable. Uh, may, may, it, some people say it might be extreme in that case, but it's just it's something that I, I care deeply about because I, I had such bad time. 
and I, I still think it's one of my weaker aspects of my musicianship, if I can be a little bit vulnerable, but it's something that I'm very self-conscious about is having good time because that's what people care about. And then on the other hand, as a, as a soloist, it, it, it's the same thing, listening to your group and not being the one that's sort of like, well, I want to just be this diva and just like <laughs> go all over right. the place. You won't get called back to another conductor if they can't follow you. Yeah. So for for a lot of soloists and a lot of concerto things that i practice i often try conducting the concerto myself to see if i can track my own performance mm -hmm. um so this idea of listening is not just like well i'm the soloist and i will bend the ensemble to my will but it's <laughs> it's uh to be a great soloist i think you want to be not not predictable is the wrong word um to be predictable but but you also want to allow people to you want to take people on that journey with you through whatever piece whether it's like the Mozart clarinet concerto for the 17th time, like you still want to be able to bring people into your world of it to bring a new light to it, however you choose to do it. Uh, so again, that this idea of listening is so important and, and to bring people into your world rather than like, well, all these people are paying these tickets to see me, but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's really like, you want to bring people in. It, it's a, it's a very opposing gesture, right? As opposed to like, ah, but like, ah, you know, um, <laughs> sorry. I, I don't know. If I can't wait videos. for people to translate the audio into what you're actually showing us on the video. <laughs> and just like, it's, what's, it's not, what's he uh, doing? It's, uh, it's, <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, uh, that, that's, that's what I can think of. And, and again, the, the principles of good time and, and good, good yeah. tuning for sure. Know, that, that's just, that's great advice for anyone who's yeah. going to listen to this, even if they are not, you know, going on to the next step in their education or whatever it is, but just, just being a cooperative and community-driven player who's, you know, using those principles. Uh, one thing I really want to ask you about, because <laughs> I just want to hear your perspective on this time, because it was the one time that all three of us were together, and that was um, a, a number of years ago for Music Fest Canada. We were, to, uh, I was, I was put in charge of putting together a group of alumni uh, called the University of Toronto Festival Winds. <laughs> so it was, this, it was this like crazy group of musicians, all of us, uh, U of T alum and, and Dr. McKay was going to conduct it. And I know um, uh, the wonderful Dr. Wallace Holiday. he kind of took it upon himself to put the sax section together, like his dream team. And I just, <laughs> I just remember it being... <laughs> I don't know how to say this without sounding offensive, but also very complimentary. I think Mark Hopkins said it best. At that time in the country, there was no better saxophone section. But <laughs> but I had I had never <laughs> I had never heard uh, a colonial song by Percy Granger like that. Like there was so yeah. much saxophone, but it was like the most uh, in tune together. <laughs> And uh, and Wallace was like playing tenor. That was the yeah. <laughs> that was the other but, weird thing. But um, but I want to. What was it like playing with that section? Yeah, that that lineup was a very interesting um, history of the Wallace Halliday yeah. show. That's what we called us. Uh, yeah, Tristan De Borba, uh, who was I think Wallace's first student at the University of Toronto and now teaches out east, I uh, believe. Acadia. Yeah, great, great player. And then I I and me. And then you had Wallace Halliday sitting on tenor of all instruments and then James Conqueror on baritone. So like, yeah. uh, like, like, you know, like very, at that time, bookends of, of, of Wallace's teaching. So that was really cool to sort of see that happen. Yeah. 
But, and, and, you know, I, it was, uh, per personally speaking, a, a strange experience because I was seeing uh, band parts that had my handwriting in it from, oh, like, years okay. and years ago. Like, the <laughs> Philip Spark uh, dance movements. Yeah. Had, had my, had, so people that have played the piece after me kept my fingering suggestions in there. Good. So that was Good. kind of neat. But then uh, I remember seeing some of them like, you did what? Oh gosh. You know, <laughs> but Question so it was a, a nice <laughs> n nostalgic experience to see, um, see sort of all this like history of U of T saxophone coming together and then seeing little like little flashbacks of like young Jeffrey, um, on, on paper. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but, but, um, playing in that group was also strange because then, you know, I'd, I'd been away from U of T for so long. I think I would have just finished my first year at, um, at MSU. So I was just okay. becoming a, a doctoral student. So I was coming back and, and then seeing Wallace again, was just sort of like, Oh, okay. Ever, ever the student. Right. Um, yeah. and, um, but playing in that section was, was certainly interesting. You had all these, uh, if I get too saxophone nerdy, you had like these instruments like like that had like not opposing tuning tendencies. So we spent a lot of time actually tuning amongst ourselves and figuring that out. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of like some of the more technical sections, we, we had, I think Wallace stole some keys to get us into like the opera dressing room so that we could run sectionals together to make sure yeah, we were you guys were intense compared to the rest of us. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> Dude, I wanted to get a coffee, and he called sectionals. Yeah, like, we were all laughing. Come on, dude. Uh, but 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 certainly he is he is a person that that um, sort of in, has ingrained that sort of um, demand for for the, the highest in, um, in 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 terms of expectations of time and and, and pitch. He has great ears. Um, I'm yeah. certainly someone that inspired me. I mean, he he himself has a deep background in music theory, and, mm -hmm. and obviously is a phenomenal saxophone player too. So like his his ears operate on such a high level so um being able to play with him in that capacity and in and in successive performances in other settings has, has been really uh fun um but you know he, he is an intense person i don't think he would shy away from that comment and no i don't think so either nor do i think yeah. he'll ever listen yeah. to this but <laughs> i did i used to think i used to think he didn't like me because i dropped his theory course twice <laughs> You know, in, in your master's at U of T, you have to take, um, it's like 20th century performance yeah. analysis, and he's the teacher. And You just didn't like theory. Oh, yeah, that, that was it. But I remember, you know, when you get into your master's, you've already taken a break from theory for like two years, two, three years. So I got in there, and he's like, the first thing was like, okay, we're going to analyze the Scriabin piece. Oh, <laughs> and I was yeah. like, mm, I'm out. Sorry. Uh, and like all the jazz guitar guys were in there and just ringing it off. Like, I have so much respect for jazz musicians but yeah oh we, we are so gosh. behind when it comes to knowing our music and like being able seriously to it. It's, it, it blows my mind i i that's something that again like humbled me very quickly when i was at u of t i took uh, some jazz lessons um and just you know you can say what you want about the precision that mm -hmm. classical players have but like the command of of of, of this the, the the ear to finger connection and and that oral oral understanding of how how music works is just so on a different level um so i, I and that's another conversation that we had a lot at michigan state university was that a lot of the jazz students in like these freshman theory courses was that a lot of these jazz students they know exactly what's happening but they just don't have like the the tools to like sometimes write all of this stuff out to express themselves on paper but like they know perfectly well what's happening up here so yeah. so honestly for yeah. a lot of a lot of classical musicians, if you're looking to stretch your ears, try to live in the day of a jazz musician for like, mm -hmm. like transcribe a solo and, and think about like, 
how like there's so many lessons to be taken from that with with my own students i tell them if you're intimidated by like a jazz solo like take a pop tune and try to transcribe it by ear you know and mm -hmm. and, and that content is much more accessible in a certain way but the the understanding of listening to that to on um, onto that level of detail um is it, it i think for a lot of musicians it just or sorry a lot of classical musicians we sort of like we just listen to a great recording of like Mahler and like, Oh, that's it. But then, <laughs> yeah. but then to be able to recall that, like a whatever solo and to be able to play it in all 12 keys and to understand, like truly understand the harmonic implications of why something is structured the way that it is. And, yep. and then understanding why a great interpretation of said solo is so good. Maybe it's in the, the way that they inflect a certain like pitch tendency, the way that they command time, those are all things that are addressed in jazz transcription and, and, and much more. I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying the process, but if you really want to humble yourself as a classical musician, try to do what the jazz players do for like a fraction of the day. It, yeah, it, five they, they really have a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think that's good advice for anybody. Just strengthening your ear and strengthening the relationship between what you're listening to and what you are you know, the output that you're creating either through your voice or your instrument, or if you're a composer, a conductor, like what are you showing and how does that re reflect, you know, what you're hearing and, and things like that. People ask me a lot about advice for starting out as a composer or an arranger or whatever. And, and your, your listening skills are just so fundamental in being able to communicate anything if we're thinking about music as a language, right? So. Yeah. And it's so interesting to think about because I think for a lot of us that are starting in like, like we're starting like pick up the saxophone or clarinet or trumpet for the first day. What's the first thing students ask for? What's the fingering for this, right? They're, they're not talking about how to play with good tone. They're not talking about how to hear or sing something ahead of time. And then you end up with um, what um, my music ed uh, professor at University of Michigan, call, Michigan um, Dr. Colleen Conway, she calls them button pushers. So you have a lot of people <laughs> that can press the right <laughs> buttons at the right time, but then they have no conception of what's in tone, what's in tune, what's in time because they, um, and I think saxophonists are particularly guilty of it because like, you know, well, a demo that I do is I turn the mouthpiece upside down and cross my hands, but I can still play a D major scale and make it sound good. <laughs> um, but but that, that's an example of where the instrument becomes so accessible that like you can play it with bad technique and, and it will work fine and well enough. But then when you go to that next step of like, well, how do you play in tune across the band? Like students, because they haven't had to be forced to listen. Mm -hmm. um, we run into all of these uh, issues where a lot of band directors are like, oh, my saxophonists are always too loud. Their middle Ds are always so sharp. C sharp is... Uh, incredibly out of tune and like well if we give students an opportunity to listen i think there's like i i want to find a way to develop like a suzuki class for like saxophonists or, or wind players in general right? right we need to get away from this system of like fingerings first music second like that that's yeah. disgusting <laughs> because like if you just push buttons at the right time then like why not just hook up a um like a, a saxophone to a robot right that there's yeah. no difference but um, the, the one thing that I think MIDI or like these, like, you know, I, I think honestly, like, uh, people in robotics are dangerously close to producing something <laughs> that can do something very, um, yeah. co competent, but where they lose out is that, that fundamental processing of musicianship, this idea of being able to emote through music. Maybe there's a code for that, but I, I think students <laughs> need to start with music first and have yeah. the technique serve the artistry. Um, certainly in my own development, I, I, I was guilty of the other way around. Like I was certainly like 
I, I know at my time at U of T, I was like saxophone, everything else, you know, and, and very quickly I had to figure out the world doesn't care about the 0.2 of a percent of, of the classical saxophone. Sax, oh, sorry. Nobody cares about the 0.2 of a percent, which is the saxophone community. It's mm. we, we, we need yeah. to be addressing a much broader community. Um, anyway, sorry, off my soapbox. No, it's okay. I'm getting all <laughs> fired up here now. Ah, oh, man. I know. This is great. <laughs> this will be a three-hour like... episode. <laughs> Could be. Got to no, break I'm, out the I'm, stronger I'm, beverages at that oh, yeah. point. Yeah. I'm yeah. holding myself back. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we heard you mention on another podcast that you were on. I'm going to quote you here. Oh, yes. You said, just because I have the DMA doesn't mean I've stopped learning. And Dylan and I are both big fans of this kind of mindset, this kind of approach to life. What do you think it means to be a lifelong learner in music? Oh, that, that, that's something that stretches way, way back for me. I mean, in, um, it, like I think back to elementary school, I think at Kennedy public school, when I was there, um, the, the, the model for the school was striving for excellence and learning for life. I think was the, the motto of mm -hmm. the school. And that's something that my mother keeps telling me, you're always a lifelong learner. You're always the student of life kind of like philosophy. Um, and, and, and so, and then, sorry, if fast forwarding to the DMA thing, I, I really think that, you know, the DMA was a monumental achievement, but at the end of day, the day, the, this, this, this piece of paper is, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's just that it's not something it, it, it does not hold the, the key to your development of an artist. So it's like when, when my students come up to me and they're unsure if they want the DMA or not. And I, so I tell them like, well, what do you want to do? Like, you don't need a permission slip from your DMA to be a great artist. And, and just because you have it, it doesn't mean that, that, that you've figured it out. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of my great uh, mentors and longtime collaborators, Dr. Liz Ames, who is an incredible saxophone like pianist specialist i think that's her title <laughs> that she's given herself but she told me that like as you get deeper in the dma you learn a lot but you also realize how much you don't know mm -hmm. and that like um and for anybody out there that's struggling through a dma um, it's it's part of the process because you're learning to consolidate the fact that you're never going to learn everything and even though comps are coming up you're just going <laughs> to do your best you yeah. know and and, and and you know like uh so on that lifelong learning bit, um, it, I, I always think that there's always going to be something that you can strive to dig deeper into another way to broaden your horizons. It's sort of like going back to what um, Dr. Mallory Thompson sort of instilled in all of us. There's always that next deeper level. There's always a, a wider net to cast in terms of your repertoire or, or knowledge base, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and we talk about silver linings of the pandemic. Um, if you can't create music on stage, artists will find other ways to be creative. So the number of people I've seen with like sourdough starters or <laughs> learning how to cook in different ways or, and starting podcasts like these, like it, I, I think it, it really has allowed us to create community and to continue learning in ways that, you know, it, they, like podcasts were not unavailable. That's a weird sentence. Like before the pandemic, right. but the abundance of them now, like I've been like thrilled to be able to hear about all like the inner workings of some of the people that I care deeply about mm -hmm. or 
And then the, also the other realization that people like, like even like Jasmine Choi, they're human too. You know, they're just like absolute monsters on stage. But then you know they they still like to cook, and <laughs> they they yeah. like coffee just like I do. Um, yeah. But I don't know that the 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 aspect of lifelong learning is just uh, it, it's just something that keeps everything fresh. You know, I've been playing the saxophone forever, but I still practice my G major scales. So practice your scales, kids. Yeah. Uh, but th there's something that, <laughs> that long Dylan tones students? and like they continue teaching me every day to keep growing, to be a better advocate for my craft, to be a better teacher for my students and to be a, a better artist for, um, for whoever wants to listen to what I have to say or do, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, don't, don't just, uh, do the music thing because I think there, I think all of us here will, will have the same sentiment that there's so much, that life finds its way to infuse itself in your artistry. Um, again, speaking from personal experience as like the undergrad that was like, practice saxophone or nothing else. <laughs> and you know, like that, that's fine. I, I don't regret doing that, but I do, I am sad that I missed out on a lot of like my friends' performances, opportunities to attend operas and, and other friends' concerts and to really broaden. Like I, I lived in downtown Toronto for like three, four years, but like, I, I did get to experience the city and that makes me sad because I'm very proudly Canadian. Um, yeah. When I go to the States, that's the first thing people know about me. But then <laughs> but like, it was sad to say that like I, I lived in Toronto for so long, but because I lived in the, I, I, I did live in Toronto. I lived at 90 Wellesley. That's where I lived. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it brought me some great opportunities, but I also missed out on a lot. So um, that being said, the lifelong learning there, there's so much out there. Like, Dedicate time to read, watch foreign films, attend other people's concerts, attend other people's digital concerts. There's, yeah. there's like so many opportunities to develop yourself and, and not all of it is obviously like in a saxophone method book, you know, <laughs> yeah. in, in my case, I'm sure there's like great uh, clarinet and trumpet methods as well, but oh, there's yeah. a couple. <laughs> That's really good advice. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, yeah, I'm grateful for your uh, transparency and your honesty about being a lifelong learner. Cause I knew when I was younger, I, for some reason, I don't know where this was instilled, but I, I was almost like ashamed, especially when I started working as a professional and like, I'm still going to symposiums. Shouldn't I know how everything works? Um, but certainly seeing people, I'm thinking like people like Dave Lum, he, mm. you know, he's going to a, a, a thing every year, improving himself. And yeah. even, mm -hmm. uh, someone who's going to be on the podcast soon, Dr. Thomas McCauley, who's at Montclair mm. State University. He, you know, he's, he's a, actually, he's a Mallory Thompson student and he is so excellent, but he still goes and does workshops and still does these things. And uh, let alone all the excellent things you're, you're talking about, expanding your cultural um, understanding as well with, with books and, and foreign films and all that. But Well, that, that's, an also, that's also an opportunity for reframing, right? You mm -hmm. could say that like, I'm ashamed that I don't know everything yet. Or you could say that this is an opportunity to, <laughs> we'll steal what everyone else knows right? <laughs> uh, but like uh yeah I, I i love going to these conferences i i miss going to them you know yeah. um certainly midwest is, is a big one but you know this year um well, well actually my my last uh performance before the pandemic was a uh nasa conference and for those that don't know uh, nasa stands for the north american saxophone alliance not the space agency so anyway <laughs> so at space camp was my last uh, uh, uh my last perform pre-pandemic you mean you're not performing up in space yet? not yet <laughs> exactly kate not yeah. yet but um but, but at those conferences was an opportunity to uh see what other music was being 
what what other what other relevant things were happening in the field, being able to see friends from around the world. Uh, so you know, on one hand, you could say like when you show up to these conferences, like what do you mean I don't know all the repertoire yet? Or oh my gosh, I can't believe that like I didn't know this thing. But it, it it's this opportunity for learning and to share what 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 you've come up with in your own teaching. So again, it's just an exercise in reframing and, and yeah. um, mm -hmm. nothing to be ashamed of to not know everything. Yeah, you nerd. So <laughs> you've this has just been a, a wonderful time talking. We we have one more question left, sure. but I I do as usual just want to remind everyone that the three of us are going to go record a bonus episode, and to be honest, have no idea what it's going to be about. I think Jeffrey might have more of an idea than we do, but uh, we will have a bonus episode, which will be uh, you'll be able to listen to if you are a part of our Patreon community, um, and you can check that out by visiting Patreon.com/slash. Bandroom Pod, um, so go check it out. That's what I'm saying. Because you know, Jeffrey's going to bring the truth. He's going to bring some pivotal, life-changing information you probably didn't get in this hour and a half. Um, anyway, Ugh. speaking of which, if you could give one piece of advice to up-and-coming performers and educators, what would it be? Oh man, um... cricket, cricket, cricket. Yeah, th this is tough. Uh, I, I always think about the lessons that I wish I knew when I was younger. Um, and, and I guess to sum up is to just be, be open about new experiences, learn mm -hmm. to be comfortable in being uncomfortable. That that's mm -hmm. something that's driven me a lot. Um, I, I, I've been very lucky to attend some of the best institutions in North America. I, I, I'm very lucky that the professors that chose to take me on took the chances on me, but I also took it upon myself to not waste these opportunities by by staying in my comfort zone, you know. So at each institution, I told myself I would do something that would really push me outside of my comfort zone. So you could say, okay, University of Toronto. Um, but this was the first time I was like taking the deep dive into music. Um, um, when I was living on residence, I was living a little bit away from home, but, you know, I was diving into contemporary music for the first time. I remember hearing um, Wallace's uh, lecture on uh, Barrio Sequenza 7B <laughs> and just being, like, jaw to the floor. I'm, I'm still picking up my jaw. Just, like, that that piece is just an incredible part of the, the, the repertoire, but, like, what it stands for, how it was constructed. But, you know, be, by being open to those experiences, I learned to grow and, and cultivate a network of my own of, of composers and being a real... Uh, you know, I try to be an advocate for the music of my time, you mm -hmm. know, um, certainly we all have areas to improve on. I'm certainly not perfect, but be getting out of my comfort zone, getting outside of the Crescent, getting outside of the Glasnost to really be open to those musical experiences. And then when I went to Northwestern, I was living on my own for the first time. So um, I had to cultivate those life skills. Mm -hmm. and, and that allowed me to grow in ways that forced me outside of my introvert bubble. I started attending conferences, meeting a bunch of people that eventually would feed back into building this community of, of work that I am a, very grateful to be a part of. And then when I got to the University of Michigan, for me, that was a like, complete accident. I never thought I would end up at the birthplace of North American saxophone, not in a million <laughs> years. And, and then at this institution that was so well known for classical saxophone, I told myself, I mean, I, I have an undergrad in performance. I have a master's in performance. Let's just try something else. And by learning to collaborate with dancers, to improvise with, with free jazz musicians, um, to work with music technology, that really rounded out my set to then mm -hmm. re real re round out my skill set to, I think, be a very 
well-versed performer, but I also had an opportunity to work with music education professors, which I didn't get a chance to before. So stretching myself in that way. And then when I went to Michigan State University, it was like, well, I've done the saxophone thing. What's left? Yeah, well, of course, whatever. <laughs> but, but then the theory degree then really pushed my buttons um, beyond, to a skill set that I had no, like, I did not believe in myself whatsoever that I had the chops for, for that field. But then when I had uh, mentors, like, like I mentioned, Lee Van Handel and Dr. Mike Callahan, who were advocating for me and just like, you know, keyboard skills are hard, but you'll get through it. <laughs> Um, Keyboards, but, but then, you know, that, that, those conversations by being that person in the room with so many brilliant minds really forced me to grow in, into being the, uh, pedagogue and advocate for my students that I, I, I try to be today. So, um, as a young, um, you know, start, if we, if we, the, on the theme of full circles, if I, if I was talking to, um, Jeffrey in Miss, Mrs. Paula Humphrey's, uh, band class, I would tell him it the 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 solo to the pink panther is not the only thing that will get you you know, <laughs> you know like to to really be open to experiences and to grow with them even if you're uncomfortable it's, i think i that that i think it's like a saying that came off of a lululemon bag it's like do one thing a day that scares you or something yeah uh that that has honestly been the one of the main drivers of my own inspiration my own career so so Take take it from Lululemon. Take it. Do do yes. one thing a day that scares you. I think that that would be They're my They're sponsoring my advice. this episode. <laughs> I, I wish, please, please. I, I need you all imagine. the swag I can get. You know. <laughs> that would be so weird. No, that that's really really great advice. And uh, and you know part of the reason I wanted to start this band room sectional series is because I find sometimes as music educators, as conductors, maybe even as composers, that we end up forgetting sometimes about the true musicianship of just of performance and and hearing you speak about being a performer and and and, a, and educator and theorist and everything that you do it has just it's it's a really great reminder i think for everyone to hear and i'm so grateful uh that you know that i know you just a little bit and i can uh i can bask in your inspiration from from social media every day which is great um, so thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us uh, here in the band room. Yeah, thank you so much, y'all. Um, stay safe, and I hope to see you soon. for spending time with us in the band room. If you want to learn more about anything we discussed in today's episode, you should visit our website, bandroompod.com. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the band room and give us that rating and review and maybe tell a friend how much you enjoyed it. If you really love the show, consider donating to our Patreon page where you can donate to BRP and get some extra incentives in return, like bonus episodes, monthly Zoom hangs with me and a mystery guest, and even some BRP merch. Speaking of another way to support the podcast, you could buy some BRP merch helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on our social media at BandroomPod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what is on the go. And if you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website. And who knows, that comment might be featured in a future episode of BRP. 
a big giant thanks to composer EKR Hamill for letting us use his piece Skyline as the BRP theme music, which was performed by the University of Toronto Wind Ensemble, conducted by Dr. Gillian McKay. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the band room.